Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part: if rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to RocketMortgage.com/fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, Allison. Hey, bro. We have a special guest here today. It's Gene Axius, and he's from AARP. He's going to help us better understand the looming concerns of long-term care that are facing all of us. Dun, dun, dun. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So what's up, Allison? Well, bro, to paraphrase King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. And a fantastic example of this is Sears, in light of the recent news that it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And you've probably seen about a million articles about the death of Sears, thanks to Amazon. But today, I'm going to share with you a few ways that Sears was the Amazon before Amazon. And I'm going to crib a large amount of this from Dylan Thompson's article, Yes, Rick, from The Atlantic, titled, The History of Sears Predicts Nearly Everything Amazon is Doing, and also another one on Investopedia called, Who Killed Sears? The answer is, all of us. So, let's get to it. Like Amazon, Sears began as a convenient way to shop from home and have stuff delivered to your door. As Dylan Thompson writes, mail was an internet before the internet. And because of it, people were able to shop at home through catalogs and have things delivered to them thanks to the rise of mail and trains and all these wonderful things that helped us communicate. So, in 1845, Tiffany's Blue Book was the first mail order catalog in the United States. And in 1872, Montgomery Ward had their first mail order catalog. So, when it was founded in 1892, Sears, that is, some 40 years after Tiffany's Blue Book, it was not the first mail-order company. But it went on to become the biggest. In fact, in the, just the first 13 years of Sears' existence, between 1895 and 1905, Sears' revenue grew by a factor of 50, from hmm. about 750000 to about $38 million. Wow. First 13 years. Like Amazon, Sears started off selling one thing. Watches, not books. And then went on to sell everything. Sears eventually had an unrivaled range of products. Only two years in, by 1894, the Sears catalog had grown to 322 pages, featuring sewing machines, bicycles, sporting goods, automobiles, all sold for a minuscule profit. Sound familiar? Yeah. If Amazon thinks they can sell everything, Sears really went on to sell everything, including kit houses, mortgages from Coldwell Banker, insurance through Allstate, and of course, anything you'd want to put in that house. Oh, and just charge it on your Discover card. Because yeah, Sears owned that too. Okay, and, and let's reemphasize that. You could buy a house through Sears. It was amazing. From, from like the and first a car. Ha- and auto. Yeah, yeah. It car, would, yeah. Like the pieces of the house would be shipped on a train. And then you would hire like contractors to put it up. Although in the early 1900s, you could just get your friends and family to do it. Yeah, your adorable little craftsman house, which in the D.C. area now goes for like three million dollars. Right, and back then it was, they were selling them for like two thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. The Sears catalog eventually hit over a thousand pages and was known as the Consumer Bible. Also, according to Investopedia, it was often used as toilet paper. 
<laughs> like Amazon, Sears put small town retailers out of business. Before Sears, most farmers relied on the local country store for buying everything, often at steep prices, very small selection, and at a high rate of credit. And here comes Sears with a massive catalog of goods at an upfront cheap price, and it's delivered to your home. Goodbye, general store. Here's a fun bonus. As the Washington Post writes, because Sears was a mail order company, it was also able to help African Americans living under Jim Crow laws purchase things without having to face racism at the general store. Yeah, so in the South, and probably all over. Yeah. Um, African Americans going into stores would be uh, would have to deal with price gouging, getting really bad terms on credit, or just straight up awfulness. Like, like if there was ever another white customer in the so- in the store, they would ignore the black customer until mm. all the white customers were served. The catalog gave them anonymity. The catalog didn't care if you couldn't spell things correctly. The catalog didn't send you poor quality of goods because of the color of your skin. Suddenly, I feel a lot better about catalogs. <laughs> like Amazon, Sears eventually moved into brick and mortar. In the 20s, Sears decided to start selling out of storefronts. The first ones were opened up in existing mail-order warehouses. At the start of 1925, there were no Sears stores in the United States. But by 1929, there were 300. At one point of growth, they were opening a new Sears department store every three days. So, what caused the move to brick and mortar? Do you want to guess? I don't know. The car. It made it easier for people to travel longer distances, and they didn't need to rely on a catalog. (laughs) The stores they opened in the 1920s outsold the catalog by 1931. Revenues totaled $180 million in 1931, by the way, which was about $2.8 billion in roughly our terms. Of course, Amazon went on to buy Whole Foods with its 400 grocery stores, has roughly a dozen physical bookstores, and just announced a partnership with Kohl's to allow returns at their locations. Like Amazon, Sears was the juggernaut in retail of its time. Sears went public in 1906 with a stock placement of $40 million, which is about $1.1 billion today. That same year, it opened a 40-acre logistics center in Chicago. According to the Sears corporate website, Henry Ford himself made a pilgrimage to, quote, the seventh wonder of the business world to learn about the company's story deficiency. It had an elaborate series of belts and chutes to deliver packages through the assembly line, and messages in between departments were delivered via pneumatic tubes. (laughs) Fast forward to the late 70s and 80s, Sears' annual revenue would reach about 1% of the U.S. gross domestic product. By comparison, Amazon's $99 billion revenue last year excluding um, web services, would equal about 0.8 of U.S.'s GDP. So, in closing, you can read a ton of articles about the downfall of Sears, because over the years, they did a number of things wrong that maybe weren't obvious at the time. So, yeah, if you're interested, there are tons of articles out there that are Monday morning quarterbacking that game. Go read them. You can get all the play-by-plays. But my lesson here isn't about poorly managed companies that fail. It's that all companies fail eventually. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like it came straight from the awfulizer. I know. <laughs> so I was reading a, I knew you'd appreciate that. I was reading a column this week that Kara Swisher wrote. Um Kara Swisher, she's co-founder of Recode. She's a powerhouse tech journalist. And she wrote this column about all the really aggressive, horrible bosses that she had stood up to over the time. Not necessarily like sexually aggressive, but just like real jerks. And in it, she accounts how one boss was being particularly jerky and self-absorbed. Um, do you remember McLaughlin? The McLaughlin, like that yep. guy? Okay. Yeah. 
So she worked for him. He sounds like a real treat. Um, and it, she recounts a story where, again, he was being particularly awful. And she said, and she writes, quote, Listen, Dr. McLaughlin, I was in Greece this summer at a temple, and there was something written on it that said Babylon was, which means every major power falls. So I said, I, looked, I took that to mean that someday I'm going to be really powerful and you're going to be like in a wheelchair in an old folks home being fed apricots <laughs> or something. Gracious. So, of course, when Kara, and apparently he laughed it off and was like, ah. <laughs> so, of course, what Kara Swisher meant when she said Babylon was was more in terms of like toxic workplaces helmed by toxic leaders. But it also holds true for businesses who, or whatever is on top, will one day topple and be replaced. Where our grandparents shopped isn't where we shopped, and is it where we shop? And Lord knows where our grandchildren will shop. I guess Mars. Whatever. <laughs> whatever that company is, I want to buy some shares. So in closing, Sears is dead. Long live Amazon. <laughs> See, I can awfulize too. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days, and it's causing a lot of anxiety with people. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process, and here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-day purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparisons to public data records, equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. And when I told the same old dream when you think of October, visions of ghosts, goblins, and people dressed up as characters from Game of Thrones may be dancing in your head. But October is actually officially long-term care planning month, and covering the cost of long-term care can indeed be a scary prospect. But it can be less frightening with proper planning. And here to provide some advice on just how to do that is Dr. Jean Axius, Vice President of Independent Living and Long-Term Services and Supports at AARP. Welcome, Gene. Hello, Gene. Well, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be part of this conversation today. Yeah, we're well, excited for to have you making the trek out here. So if you don't mind, let's start with you talking a little bit about your life story and how you ended up on this path to having this role at AARP. Sure. I was raised by my grandmother for the first four years of my life. So this affinity toward uh, older adults is something that's been ingrained in who I am since my very existence. Uh, my first job, in fact, uh, while my friends were getting jobs working at retail stores and malls and things of that nature, uh, I got a job working at a retirement community. Uh, I started off as a busboy, uh, made my way up to a server, uh, and then eventually started becoming uh, the dining room manager oh. uh, for a retirement community in South Florida. And I said, you know what? I enjoy working with older adults. I enjoy the environment. I enjoy hearing their stories. 
uh, and also learning and benefiting from their knowledge base and their wisdom. So I said, I'm going to go off to college and uh, major in hospitality. And uh, that turned into not just majoring in hospitality, but also getting a master's in gerontology and then working in policy. I got an opportunity to do a lot of work on long-term care issues, uh, both in the private sector and then working for the state of Florida uh, for the Department of Elder Affairs, doing a lot of policy work for them. That ended up uh, opening the pathway to doing work uh, here in D.C., uh, and then uh, at the federal level. So a lot of my work has been looking at how do you pay for long-term care? Uh, how can we create options for people as they age? Uh, how can we kind of think about the systems that are in place to support people who are providing care? There's over 40 million family caregivers in this country, uh, and they need a lot of help and support. So I'm excited to be part of this conversation, in part because of the fact that this is something that we typically don't think about, nor do we want to talk about. And unfortunately, we have to face it when there's a period of crisis. Uh, and to the extent to which we can plan, to the extent to which we can have these conversations, uh, the better off we will be, not just the family member, but also the person who needs care. I think part of what's scary about it is that people see the stats mm -hmm. on long-term care and the expenses and think there's no way I can do anything about it, so I'm not going to do anything. So just so we can scare everyone, let's do some of those stats. Um, so on average, <laughs> here we go. Whoa. Scary uh, stats. So the stats, and most of this comes from AARP, um, but other places as well. The stats are generally speaking that about 70% of people 65 and older will need some type of long-term care. Average cost is $138,000 of any kind of care, but a stay in a nursing home across the country is an average $100,000 a year. Um, living in assisted living is about $45,000 a year. Some sort of adult daycare of some kind, $70,000 a day. So that's almost $20,000 a year. That's an awful lot of money. And when people see that, they think there's no way I can plan for that. But that's not necessarily true, right? You know, that, that is exactly correct. I, I think part of the issue is the fact that it is overwhelming. Uh, when you hear those numbers, uh, depending on where you live, uh, you can be paying significantly out of pocket. I, so, for example, like in a nursing home in Alaska is almost $300,000 a year. Wait, what? Yes. Absolutely. Highest, highest state in the country. State. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you hear those numbers, you don't know even where to start, uh, in part because of the fact that we don't necessarily have a long-term care system uh, that is actually person and family-centered. And what I mean by that is the fact that the person uh, and the family are in the center of these conversations. Uh, the cost for... Uh, 30 hours of having someone come into your home is roughly about $30,000, $34,000, give or take. Uh, and that exceeds the vast majority of what older adults can actually afford on an annual basis. In fact, we did a study uh, called Across the States where we wanted to uh, put out all these numbers, uh, the amount that it costs for nursing home care, the amount that it costs for assisted living, or the amount that it costs for home care. And one of the key findings is the fact that it's unaffordable across the country. So you do need to have a plan. And the question becomes exactly, what does that plan look like? And there are four factors that impact typically long-term care costs. One is exactly where you live. Where you live matters significantly. Uh, the other is what type of care do you need? Uh, whether that's nursing home care, assisted living, or home care, uh, whether it's moving into a age-restricted uh, active adult community or a continuing care retirement community, whether it's assisted living uh, or whether it's adult day uh, to provide you with some support during the day. The third aspect of this too is uh, how much care do you actually need? Um, and then of course, 
for how long? So all of those four factors impact some of the costs that you're hearing in terms of some of these staggering numbers. But there are things that people can actually do. We know that the vast majority of people, uh, and you can kind of think about yourself, uh, as you age, where would you like to receive care? And oftentimes it's in your home and your community. So one of the things we're encouraging people to do uh, is that when you go home, or if you're home right now, assess whether or not where you live can accommodate your needs as you age. And what I mean by that is the fact that are there universal design principles? And universal design features are things like, well, is there a bedroom and a full bathroom on the first floor? Uh, why is that important? In part because of the fact that as you age, our, uh, the ability to go up and down steps might become a challenge. Uh, so that's one thing to consider. Or how safe is the actual home uh, that you live in? Are there grab bars? Are there uh, zero entry steps? Meaning the fact that uh, can you get up into your home without having to take the steps in there? Uh, are there handrails? Uh, what are some of the modifications that you can actually do uh, in your uh, bathroom? Or what are the things that you can do to b basically live independently for as long as possible with a sense of dignity? And the earlier you can actually start that process, uh, the better off you'll be, just in terms of assessing and then coming up with some form of a plan. We think about what our current needs are today, but can our where we live, eat, play, work, uh, can those homes and communities accommodate our needs as we age? That's a question. And I think that one of the things that's extremely important for us to kind of think about is to imagine the future that you want for yourself. Uh, the earlier you can actually start planning, the more likely you are going to be able to have more choices, more options. And it helps to reduce the sense of stress and the sense of being overwhelmed by some of these stats because you have a plan in place. And it also, to the extent that is possible, helps you help your family. Because one of the things that we're trying to do is foster these conversations so that way your family knows exactly what you want. And more importantly, you're in the driver's seat in terms of executing in terms of what you actually want. So that's one of the things. Assess with what the home environment's like. The other thing that I would uh, encourage you to do is to think about, you know, when I look at my community, do I have the right community features in terms of is there a grocery store that's nearby? Is there a medical uh, doctor's office that's nearby? Can I get to and from? Think about it. Your neighborhood is your gateway to all things uh, in terms of social engagement. So what are the transportation options that are available? Uh, what are the alternatives if you can no longer drive? Are you able to get to and from? I'll give you a good example of what I mean by this. Uh, when I worked for the federal government, I had an opportunity to actually do a site visit to Richmond. And I got an opportunity to talk to someone who was part of a program who transitioned out of a nursing home back into the community. He was, check this out, he was roughly in his early 40s. Former police officer, oh. tragic situation, gunshots, paraplegic, mm. you know, so you can kind of, uh, was uh, in a nursing home for some quite, uh, quite some time, was able to transition out of the nursing home back uh, living with his brother and his brother's wife in a beautiful home in Richmond uh, with a beautiful lake. Uh, the, there were some home modifications that were done to accommodate uh, the gentleman's needs. And when we started to talk to him about exactly, you know, can you kind of talk to us or walk us through your day? What he said was the fact that every day that there's a personal care attendant that comes in and it's with him during the day uh, and leaves around one or two in the afternoon. And his brother and his brother's wife doesn't come home until about five or six. Right. So from one to about five or one to six, he's pretty much isolated 
in this home. And he said, look, I may not have the physical abilities, but I still want to work. I am mentally sharp. There's a lot I can do, um, but um, I'm having a hard time getting to and from. So we said, well, you know, or how engaged or integrated are you in the community? He said, well, you know, we live in a cul-de-sac and the public transit only comes to the entryway of the neighborhood. So they're not going to come to the front of the entrance. So that was an issue, right, that we had to try to figure out how to resolve that. Here you have someone who wants to be socially engaged, who wants to contribute and provide value. Um, but because of this infrastructure and some of the barriers in the community was not able to do so. So I think it's also important to kind of think about exactly as you age, what are the options in your community to support you in your aging process? What are the abilities in terms of transportation, in terms of social engagement, in terms of the different types of opportunities? And we have a tool called the ARP Livability Index that uh, you can actually go in, you put in your zip code and it'll tell you exactly how livable your community is. And that's for all ages and people with disabilities. And the other aspect of that too is to understand exactly what are the different types of programs that are available to support you as you age. So again, we hear the stats, you're $100,000 for nursing home care, $34,000 to get someone to come and provide you 30 hours of care. And that can be overwhelming and, and, and frankly stressful, right? Um, but there's a lot of programs and opportunities at the local level uh, that may offer uh, services on a sliding scale, whether that's home delivered meals, whether that's transportation options, whether that's caregiver support. So I would encourage you to look through your local um, area agency on aging and, and find out exactly what services and supports are available for you and your community. Or if you are a daughter or a son or a friend caring for someone who's long distance, what are those different types of services that are available in that person's community? So that's something else you can actually think about uh, in terms of planning uh, for your long-term care needs. When people think of being older and your healthcare needs, they think of things like Medicare. Mm -hmm. But how much can people expect from Medicare and maybe Medicaid in terms of helping with a lot of these costs? So that is a very good question. One of the biggest myths and misunderstandings is the fact that Medicare will pay for long-term care uh, or, your private long -term, uh, your, or your private insurance will pay for long-term care. And in fact, Medicare nor your private insurance pay for long-term care. Uh, they just don't. That's just one of the areas where they don't cover those different types of benefits. And when we talk about long-term care, we're referring to things like assisting you with your bathing, your dressing, your eating, your medication management, or helping with uh, managing finances or taking care of transportation, some home modifications. So these are personal social support activities that you need assistance with. Um, and Medicare doesn't cover that. Medicaid, on the other hand, does. But in order to qualify for Medicaid, you have to uh, have limited resources. Uh, and, and it varies by state in terms of the eligibility requirements. So that would be, it would be very important to assess what the eligibility requirements are in your particular state. But on average, you can only have about $2,000 worth of countable assets. Uh, and that excludes the home, but depending on your state, there's, it depends on the equity in your home. Um, so there, there's limitations there. I want to kind of go back to something else that I mentioned is this whole issue about choice uh, and why it's so important uh, for us to plan ahead and plan as much as we can with respects to long-term care uh, because it increases your options and it increases your choices when you actually have a plan in place. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, in the context of Medicaid, 
if you do become eligible, meaning the fact that you've met their requirements for eligibility, nursing home care is a, requ- is a required service, meaning that every state has to offer you nursing home care. So if you're eligible, automatically you would be eligible for nursing home care. Home and community-based services, that means getting services in your home, is an optional benefit. So states don't are not required to offer that. And the states that do, they offer, but there's limitations in terms of the caps, their allotments. So in some cases, there might be long waiting lists to actually get these services. Yeah, you talked about being in the, the driver's seat with this. Once you get to the point where you need Medicaid, you're no longer in the driver's seat. So there's, the, the, again, it really depends on where you live. Okay. Um, it, it depends on where you live in, in the sense that some states provide you with the option to get home community-based services so you can actually get those services in your home, but you have to go through the process of being um, eligible. Uh, they also, some states provide what we refer to as consumer-directed care. So it, it allows you to be in the driver's seat. But what I mean by um, increasing options is the fact that once you've gotten onto Medicaid, because there's so many different factors that comes into play, you are you could potentially be in the driver's seat, but it depends on whether or not the services are available, not just in your state, but also in your geographic area. Gotcha. So some ways that people have tried to plan for this is by buying long-term care insurance policies, um, which I think first came out in the 70s and for a while were generally popular, except that when people bought the policies, they were often told your premiums won't go up generally speaking. But that ended up not really being the case and that the vast majority of people ended up having to pay more. The uh, promised benefits didn't keep up with the cost of long-term care. And it's gone from something like 125 insurance companies offering it down to about 15 because it's such a tricky business. So what's your take on whether long-term care insurance is a good way to manage these potential costs? So currently there's about 7.5 million people that actually have a private long-term care insurance policy. When you kind of think about the overall cost for long-term care, what we know is that the vast majority of people uh, are getting their care from their families. Uh, And family caregivers contribute roughly about $470 billion in unpaid care every year. Private long-term care insurance is an option for those who could potentially afford it. it. It is a niche product in the sense that uh, as I mentioned before, 7.5 million people have these options. What we're seeing in terms of the private long-term care insurance industry is that it's going through a transformation for many of the things that you just mentioned, uh, Robert, uh, that there was an assumption that um, there might be more in terms of lapse rates uh, and that the interest rates would actually uh, be viable so that the carers could actually make uh, some, some money, if you will, in order to be able to pay out claims. And what we've known over the last couple of years is the fact that, you know, given the uh, Great Recession uh, and the drastic um, uh, rates in terms of declining interest rates and coupled with the fact that that people, uh, which is a good thing, uh, when, when they buy a long-term care insurance policy, they hold on to it. Right. Right. Uh, so there were some assumptions that were made with that product that and bear out, as you indicated before. There was one stat from an AARP report that I'd never seen, but it was basically for every one percentage point drop in interest rates, the cost of providing the policy to the insurer goes up 10 to 15%. Mm-hmm. 
Because when the insurer takes that money in, they invest it. That's exactly right. It, on the, the, they're investing the float, but they have to play it safe. That's exactly and right. when interest rates are so low, they're just not making much money. And that's mm-hmm. been a big problem with, right. for the insurance industry. Right. And then the other thing, too, is the fact that, uh, you know, there, there's, there, there's some challenges both on the supply and demand side. Right. So as you indicated, in terms of for insurance, that's been a challenge. But also, if you think about it from a consumer standpoint, you're asking me to... Uh, purchase a product that I may or may not necessarily need 30, 40 years down the line. Uh, and the other aspect of that, too, is the fact that there's different variations and complexity. So there's, and then you tack on top of that, uh, the increases in premiums. So I think that the industry itself has done a um, deep look to try to get a sense as to exactly how can we be more responsive to the needs of consumers. Uh, how can we reduce some of the complexity in terms of some of the products uh, while actually meeting a, a, a actual need? And what we're seeing is the fact that while standalone policies have gone down, you are seeing an increase in hybrid products. Uh, so you are seeing that increase in terms of what consumers are looking for, both in terms of to address some of these this more long-term um, predictions in terms of what the need might be and, and also what the benefits might actually happen. Right. But yeah. By a hybrid product, you mean basically it's, life insurance with a, a long-term care rider. Right. Um, so basically, it's like, if for some reason you need it, it's an acceleration of the death benefit. At least that's, that's one variation. That's one variation, it. exactly. Right. And the other thing I would say is the fact that um, we actually just released a report on the state of private long-term care insurance. And I would encourage people who are thinking about that uh, as a product is to try to get it when you're younger and also when you're healthy in part because of the underwriting requirements. And the way that private long-term care insurance work is the fact that the younger you purchase the product, the cheaper the premium will actually be. Um, and that's something to also consider and also kind of think about some of the trade-offs. Uh, the private long-term care insurance market itself is looking at different variations of how you actually provide the product. So it's more affordable for some consumers. But understand, I think it's critically important for consumers to understand exactly what does that affordability look like? And what does that actually mean? Should I ever need it? Uh, is there inflation protection? Uh, and why is that important? In part because of the fact that if you're not going to need the product for 30 years, if there's not inflation protection, then the benefit itself erodes over time. Uh, what are the issues in terms of lapse rates? Uh, and exactly what could you potentially do with getting some of the benefits back? So I think there's there's questions that consumers should think about. It's a as they explore private long-term care insurance, which, again, is a viable option for those who can actually afford it. Uh, we know that, uh, the, that the industry itself paid roughly about $9 billion in claims over the course of the last two years. Uh, we know that more and more people are claiming benefits, and they're generally satisfied with the product. Part of the solution is deciding where to live in the right community for you. One concept you've written about is the village. Not to be confused with the villages down in Florida, but the village concept. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the villages concept is, it started off in Beacon Hill in Boston. And it really is uh, grassroots. It's neighbors helping neighbors. And I I love to tell this story. Uh, We had an opportunity to hear from some of the founders. And they wanted to age in their community. Uh, And they were told, well, you know, you can't. Uh, and they said, well, why can't we? Uh, so they formed a village. And it's really Neighbors Helping Neighbors organized as a nonprofit designed to help them age with options. The village, uh, and there's roughly several hundred uh, in the 
the United States. And it does a couple of things. One is that it actually allows you to engage with others uh, and it allows you to age in your home and community for as long as possible. Uh, these are nonprofits for the most part. They're voluntarily driven, uh, reflects the needs and preferences of the communities in which they are in. Uh, some of them are staff with executive directors. The one in Beacon Hill is, has a full-time executive director and some staff. And they do a range of things. They help with some of the, you know, the managing of um, home modifications or providing you with a list of providers that you can contact to help with uh, things in your home. Uh, they do a lot of social engagement activities. Uh, in the case of Beacon Hill, one of the things that they did was the fact that they worked very closely with the healthcare uh, system. And, and one of their members was getting discharged from the hospital and their family lives in another state. And the hospital discharge uh, planner called the executive director and said, you know, Miss Jones is leaving and is about to get discharged from the the hospital uh, and you know she's going to need some help and by the time Ms. Jones actually got home from the hospital there uh, the executive director and some of the volunteers had already stacked her fridge up with food and then they would constantly check up on her uh, so th- it is really grassroots it's, it's, it's really that sense of community there's one not too far from here Mount Vernon at mm-hmm. home and if I understand it correctly, it's basically a bunch of people. It's like we're all in this together. That's exactly. So right. let's help each other out. That's exactly. Someone right. can't drive. I can drive. So I'm going to help you with the shopping, or I'm going to help you get to church. That's exactly. What, right. It just connects all the people together. That's exactly right. Uh, it, it it is a sense of community, and it is really looking out for one another, because again, the desire to age with options and to age in your home and community is so strong, and it's something that we've been tracking for many many years, uh, at least about 20 years, I think, uh, and it stayed. It has consistently stayed extremely high and people are looking for options, alternatives that are not as expensive as moving into assisted living or as expensive as getting nursing home care or moving into a care, uh, retirement care community. Uh, and the villages is playing that meaningful role. So one thing that uh, I was reading about you and in an interview with Black Enterprise magazine, you'd said, quote, aging, in my opinion, is a social justice issue. People, especially people of color, are easily marginalized, devalued, and discriminated just because of their age. And to me, that kind of nails it on the head, but you don't really hear aging talked about as a social justice issue. So I'd love to get more of your thoughts on well, that. Well, absolutely. This is something I'm, I'm extremely passionate about. And, and in fact, this is something AARP, through our work around disrupt aging, is really under our CEO, Joanne Jenkins, is leading a charge on, is this whole idea that how people are aging uh, is drastically different from how they've aged in the past. And the whole notion is the fact that we put labels on people, uh, and particularly as they age. And those labels constrain. And I think it's extremely important to kind of think about what are the value statements we're making when uh, we make some of these, or society makes some of these type of statements. I look at my family and they couldn't wait to get us out the house. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, they are actively engage in their community. They're going on trips with their friends. Uh, They're living their best life as best as they can actually do it. Uh, However, you don't see those type of images often. You see, and so the question becomes exactly, what are the stereotypes we actually see in terms of um, older adults? Uh, And why is it that for all the isms that we have set as a society, that that is not uh, acceptable? However, when it comes to ageism, there's a little bit more leniency. 
And as an organization, we're trying to disrupt aging and the fact that we want to help people age uh, and live their best life the way that they want to live their best life, realizing that how they want to age is drastically different um, from what society might think it is. And I think that it is so easy. And and, it, and it's sometimes these comments or these statements or these jokes are said in jest, but I think that it there's potential some truth behind even some of those jokes. Uh, and we have a great opportunity to really kind of think about how do we design, innovate, and create bold solutions so people can age with options, age with dignity, independence, and a great sense of purpose. Older adults are not uh, a liability. Uh, they want to be great contributors. They want to provide value. There's a great sense of wisdom uh, and excitement. Uh, and to the extent to which we can work collectively to kind of think about and embrace what it means to be your age. I, many years ago, we had a major conference in Miami. It was one of our AARP conferences. And our CEO challenged everyone to walk around with a button saying how old you are. Uh, <laughs> and it was so powerful to see people walking around with these buttons and I am 77 years old and I am proud of it. Uh, and just think about that. Your life history has shaped who you are as a person. Uh, so rather than shy away from it, embrace it. And I think that what we're trying to do is stimulate these conversations, not just in the public sector, but also in the private sector. What types of products are we creating? Uh, and, uh, you know, we're excited to see when companies say, you know, we're going to stop using the term anti-aging. That's a good thing, uh, in part because of the fact that it embraces the full you uh, and everything that has happened that's gotten you to that point. So that is what... It, you know, disrupt agents about, and in particularly in that clip, what I was referring to is the fact that uh, it's oftentimes it's so easy to uh, for society to marginalize people just because of their age, and we have some wonderful clips that uh, on our ARP website around disrupt aging, where we actually highlight, and we did this with uh, millennials, uh, and we said to the millennials exactly when you think of an older person, what comes to mind. And you can see these millennials uh, do different gestures, whether it's the flip up phone slowly coming out <laughs> or, or walking extremely slow. Yeah. Uh, and then we said, OK, then we paired the millennials with some older adults. And we had the millennials teach the older adults something. And then we had the older adults teach the millennials something. And it's an amazing clip to watch because one of the older adults tried to teach one of the millennials how to do a yoga stand. And the, I mean, he just struggled. <laughs> he just struggled. Or uh, a millennial tried to teach uh, one of the older adults how to do one of these hip dances. Mm -hmm. And he showed her once, and then she was able to pick it up and did it, did it better than he could. Mm -hmm. You know, so, mm -hmm. and so then we said, you know, how old do you think is old? You know, how old is old? And then their response was drastically different once they actually had an opportunity to engage with the person. And that is what Disrupt Aging is about. That is what we're trying to do, that it is a social justice issue. It's the fact that you don't see the individual, you see the person's age. But if you were to actually talk to the individual, connect with the individual, that sense of connection, your perception of what it means to get older will be drastically different. And so we want to challenge that. That's great. So let's, uh, let's conclude with a few actionable things that people could do. Someone's listening to this. They are concerned about their own long-term care planning. What are one or two things that they should do immediately? 
first of all, visit us at our ARP uh, website. We have a caregiver resource website that has a range of information and tools and tips and checklists that will actually give you options in terms of exactly exploring what what is the cost of care in my community. We have a long-term care calculator that where you can actually look at your state. You can actually compare how much the cost of long-term care is by the different types of options that are available. And you can at least have that as a plan. The other thing is the fact that there's a range of resources for you to think about putting everything together in terms of your finances and whether it's your 401k, your retirement, your savings, all in one place. Then we have a list of resources in terms of exactly here's who you need to contact and call to get a sense as to what options are available in your local community. And hopefully by having that checklist, that plan, you're Again, one better off in terms of having those options and those choices. The other thing we would encourage is to have these conversations with your family. Family caregivers are unrecognized and need to be recognized for the hard work that they do each and every day. The vast majority of them are working. And we at ARP say either you are a family caregiver, you were a caregiver, or you're likely to become a caregiver. Uh, in part because of the fact that the family caregivers are the ones that are providing the bulk of the long-term care in this country. So we want to encourage them to kind of think about what are your needs as a family caregiver uh, and what type of resources and support can uh, be provided to help support you as you care for someone else. And part of that is having that conversation. Uh, What are your preferences as you get older? What are your preferences in terms of where you would like to receive services should you need them? Uh, And then having that conversation so your family can honor those preferences and be in a position where in the event there is a crisis, they know exactly what to do and to honor your uh, preferences. That's great, Gene. Thank you for coming in. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And it's, it's really uh, our honor to be part of these conversations. And uh, we look forward to working very closely with all of you and kind of thinking about exactly how can we help people, broadly speaking, age with options. That's the show. It's edited terminally by Rick Engdahl. (laughs) Too dark. Too dark. Keep on sending us your home buying, selling, and moving advice so I can read it all on the upcoming show. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.